If you'll open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11. Growing up, one of my favorite weeks of the entire year was going and spending it with my grandma Cook. She lived in Portsmouth, Ohio, in what was a very, very impoverished area of the city. In fact, I didn't realize how dangerous the area was until I got a little bit older and I wondered what in the world were my parents thinking? And then I thought, I think I know what they were thinking. And so we would go there, my brother and I, and uh, there were three things that made the week a highlight, really four. One was my grandmother. She was crippled by arthritis. She could not get up her stairs, so she slept on the couch, um, disabled for quite some time, very dilapidated uh, home that she lived in. But she was just the most wonderful of people. The second thing I enjoyed was she always would make oatmeal cookies for us. And my brother and I would help make the oatmeal cookies. And that was uh, another high point in the the week. A third was one time during the week, we would walk down the street, usually at high noon, when that's the only time those basically safe. We'd walk down the street, high noon, go to the uh, drugstore, sit at the counter at the drugstore, and she would buy my brother and I a chili dog And to me, that was one of the greatest events of the year. And then the last was to watch game shows with her during the day. And her favorite game show was Let's Make a Deal. I don't know if you're familiar with Let's Make a Deal. It might still be on TV, but but, uh, Bob Barker was like her hero, the the, uh, commentator for Let's Make a Deal. Here's the way it worked. The contestants were called traitors. And they would be shown something up on the stage, and then there would be three uh, curtains behind that, uh, whatever that something may be. And you could accept the gift, whatever it might be, or you could choose one of the curtains. And inevitably, it'd be something like uh, a year supply of chocolates. And you're thinking, you can do better than that. Don't take the chocolates. Inevitably, they say, we're going to take the chocolates, your supply of chocolates. Well, what, what would you have chosen? I would have probably chosen door, door number two. They open it up and there's a Mercedes Benz. You gave up the Mercedes Benz for a chocolate. What's wrong with you? And so we would watch it and we would laugh and, and have just a wonderful time together. And the interesting thing is that's the way some people deal with God. Some people in their relationship with God, they want to make deals with God. I find myself from time to time in life wanting to negotiate with God. God's not a good negotiator because God doesn't negotiate. But a lot of times people will say, you know, if you'll just get me this job, if you'll get me this job, I'll read my Bible every day. If you just allow this relationship to work out and and we get married, we'll go to church every Sunday. And we we think we're really sweetening the deal for God, persuading Him, twisting His arm, that He would do for us that which we want Him to do, only if we will give Him that which He ultimately wants. But God doesn't deal that way. God doesn't make deals. He's not Bob Barker. He's not up there saying, now, I tell you what, if you'll just obey me, I'll give you that relationship, that job, I'll heal your, I'll heal your loved one of a sickness. No, Jesus doesn't make deals. 
for obedience. And in chapter 11, verses 27 through 36, that's what the crowd wanted. They were trying to make a deal with Jesus. They wanted him to perform some unbelievable sign, some spectacular miracle, something so overwhelming, so powerful, so magnificent that it would compel them to believe in him and to follow him. Last week, we we saw the fact that he had just cast a demon out of a man, but that's not enough. It's never enough. It's never enough when when you play let's make a deal with God. One deal leads to another deal leads to another deal, and God just doesn't get into those kinds of spiritual games. Well, I want you to notice in the opening two verses that God promises great blessings to those who will hear the Word of God and do it. It's clear, it's unambiguous. To hear God's Word and obey it brings blessings. So he's just cast a demon out of a man, and he drew a line in the sand. If you're not with me, you're against me. He's preached a very powerful, a very powerful sermon, apparently. And so there's a woman in the crowd, and, and she says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that carried you and the breast at which you nursed. Now, I don't think we should necessarily be critical of this woman. I don't think Jesus was critical of her. But that's not the greatest blessing in life. Jesus goes on to say, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and follow it. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God, really hear the Word of God, listen to the Word of God, and obey it. Now, most of you are here every week, week in and week out. You're sitting and we're preaching the Word of God to you. You're hearing the Word of God. You've just come from Bible fellowship groups. Bible fellowship groups, the first word is Bible. And so there's very good, faithful teaching of the Bible in these Bible fellowship groups. And yet, our spiritual lives struggle. It seems like we're always getting going and halting and two steps forward and maybe three steps back. Some of it may be that we're, that we're, we're le- listening but not actually hearing. Let me give you some, some thoughts to become a better listener of God's Word. Four quick thoughts. The first one is this, come to church expecting to hear from God. We come to church and sometimes we're not expecting much. We're just not even thinking about it. It's not, that, it's not that we're not expecting anything. We're just not thinking about the fact God wants to speak to me today. Maybe through the preaching of God's Word and congregational worship, maybe through the Bible fellowship group teacher, but come expecting to hear a word from God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to conform us into the image of the Son of God. Second, get your heart prepared to hear from God's Word by worshiping as you sing. It's easy for me to sing, but sometimes I can sing and not worship. There's a difference between singing and worshiping. Worshiping means my attention is focused on the one that I'm singing to. I'm not singing to you and you're not singing to me. We're singing to the one true and living God. We're singing to the one that sits on heaven's throne. And so as we sing, we want our thoughts to be engaged with our lips. We want to think about the words that we're singing. We want to pray the words that we're singing. 
And so our hearts are softer and more receptive when we sing and worship. Or that as we sing, what we're doing is worshiping. We're not just singing. Number three, be teachable. Know-it-alls grow intellectually. They just remain spiritually immature. You can know a lot about the Bible and not be a very mature person. I tell my students at the seminary, spiritual giftedness does not equal spiritual maturity. Everybody gets a spiritual gift when they're saved. But you can be a spiritual imbecile with a spiritual gift if you don't use it for God's glory and develop it in a way that is for God's advancement of his, of his kingdom. And so you can know a lot about theology and not be a good husband. You can be a phenomenal student of the Bible, not be a good mother. You can be a very astute theologian and not be a very good church person. That is, you can remain spiritually immature if you're a know-it-all. Know-it-alls don't grow very well. They grow in a very distorted and dysfunctional kind of way. And then fourth, follow along in the Bible as the sermon is preached. That is, have your Bible open, your iPad, whatever it may be that you're following along, because a sermon is only as good as the text that's being preached. That is, only as much as it points us to the text. We think about the text, we talk about the text, we center on the text, that we draw out of the text and we don't push into the text. We draw out of it. And so we want to be good listeners and we want to be obedient to that which we hear because there's the promise of blessing. There's the promise of fullness of joy. God does good things in the lives of growing people. It doesn't mean that their life is easy. Their life can be hard. It can be arduous. They can get sick. They can lose their job. But the presence of God, the peace of God, is, uh, fills their heart and lives. And a part of that comes from being a good listener and a faithful follower of what the Bible says. But I wanted you to go to the, the central section, the heart of this passage. And here Jesus makes it very clear that he's not going to be making any deals for the obedience of his hearers. And he doesn't have to make any deals with them because he is greater than the prophet Jonah and he is wiser than King Solomon. So in, in verse 29, it says, now as the crowds were increasing, I want us to stop there for just a moment. Because for the average person, and Jesus wasn't the average person, for the average person, one of the most dangerous places to be is in a position where God is using you. Now, we often measure success by numbers. Success is measured by faithfulness. But when the crowds do begin to increase, and there is an increase in numbers, that can put a person in a very precarious predicament because pride is very, very subtle. In fact, it works subversively and subconsciously. We go from making it about Jesus to subtly, though we would never put it this way and we probably wouldn't even think of it being this way, to making it about ourselves. I know best. I do best. I deserve the best. 
And then the person of God begins to try and build a brand for themselves. They, they try to create an image of themselves. And an image that would be impressive to those that are looking on from a distance. When I was a doctoral student, many of my fellow doctoral students were more enamored with the book Dress for Success than they were with the Word of God. And they were very meticulous, very specific. Nothing wrong with dressing nicely. Something wrong when you dress nicely to try and brand yourself. Younger preachers of our day deplore that. They deplore that kind of mindset, that kind of ideology, and yet they do the very same thing. They think about, okay, what sneakers are going to make the biggest impression on my 20-something audience? Or, you know, if I don't shave this afternoon when I teach that Bible study tomorrow night, I'll kind of have, a, I'll kind of have a, a little bit of a beard. And they're thinking about the most insane kinds of things, the most idiotic kinds of deplorable manners of how can, I, how can I get people into my brand? I say get real. It's ridiculous. It's no different thinking about, am I going to shave so that I have a certain facial uh, hair tomorrow night than it is to say, I think I really need a particular tie from a particular store and I, I, need, a little, I need a little handkerchief to put in my pocket that will match it. Now, the crowds are growing, growing, but Jesus doesn't change. Jesus stays the same. Leadership is about leading. And leading is about caring, serving, not about self-promotion. If one is not willing to be a servant and a follower, they're definitely not worthy of being a leader. Most of you have never heard of the name Jim Baker. Jim Baker in the 80s was one of the most popular figures on Christian television. The PTL Club was viewed by millions of people every single day. He was ultra charismatic and health wealth before either were very popular. Uh, Jim Baker eventually had his entire empire collapse while he was in the process of building a Christian theme park, whatever that is, when it was discovered that he was having inappropriate relationships with a female intern. Eventually, he went to prison for fraud. And yet he was idolized by millions of people. Richard Dorch was the second in command. And a few years after the smoke cleared, after the devastating rubble had been pushed away, Richard Dorch gave an interview to Christianity Today on the topic of success. This is what he said. Sometimes I think the church doesn't know anything about true success. It's all tied to how many stations we have on our network or how big our building is. It's so easy to lose control, to compromise without recognizing it. At PTL, there was no time taken for prayer or for family because the show had to go on. We were so caught up in God's work that we forgot about God. 
And so the crowds are pressing in and Jesus remains the same. He's going to push and call those who want to follow him to a life of repentance. And so he says in verse 29b, this generation is a wicked generation. It demands a sign. They wanted a sign. They wanted him to prove himself. It wasn't enough that he had just cast out a demon. It wasn't enough that he had been healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. They wanted more. They wanted bigger. They wanted better. If you want us to follow you, you've got to deliver for us. You've got to, you've got to provide for us. What you've done so far is a nice beginning, but we want a lot more. And so Jesus tells them pointedly, unambiguously, forthrightly in verse 29, no sign will be given to it, to that generation, except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Well, you remember the reluctant prophet Jonah. He never really did become a very good person, even though he did eventually do what God called him to do. He did it kind of, not kind of, he did it reluctantly. And he went to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were some of the most brutal people in the ancient world. It would be like God calling someone to go to Berlin during the height of Nazi Germany's power. Only the Ninevites were much worse. Who would have ever thought that the Spirit of God could use the Word of God to work in a people like the Ninevites? But that's exactly what happened. God brought revival to the Ninevites. The Ninevites repented of their sin. And they came to faith in God. And there was a a tremendous transformation for a period of time in Nineveh. Well, Jonah was assigned to them. Remember that Jonah had been in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. These people want a sign. He's not going to give them a sign in their time, in their way, that that meets their desire. But he's got a sign. The sign is that he's going to be crucified, put in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day be raised from the dead. But that kind of sign isn't going to be an interest to them. That kind of sign doesn't fit their, their, their MO. It's, it's not what they're interested in, a crucified, resurrected Savior. But that's the sign that they're going to, that they're going to receive. And because they are going to, they're rejecting Jesus, Jesus calls someone to be their judge, the Queen of the South. She's going to be a judge to this generation. She's going to to wield the gavel and say, guilty. She's going to say, they deserve to go to hell because they had the preaching of the Son of God and they rejected the preaching of the Son of God. And he is greater than Solomon. I made a journey across the earth to hear Solomon, but Jesus is greater than Solomon. Look what he says in verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So one judge, guilty and condemned. Then they call it, Jesus calls a second judge, the Ninevites. The Ninevites are going to stand up with the queen of the south and the men of this generation. And it says in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and condemn it. 
because they repented of the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So one greater than Solomon, one greater than Jonah, one greater than the prophets, one greater than the wisest of men is standing before them and they want to make a deal with him. We'll take curtain number two. Give me curtain number two. But Jesus doesn't make deals. Jesus promises blessing to those who hear the word of God and do it. He tells a little parable. It's a little bit of a confusing parable, but I think it's easy enough for us to unravel the parable. It's a parable that's about light, and it's a parable about listening, and it's a parable that takes us back to the woman where Jesus said to her, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. Uh, This parable is an exclamation, so to speak, on what Jesus said. And Jesus is going to talk about a lamp and a light. And he indicates that that light and the lamp that radiates from that light is him. In verse 33, he says, no one lights a lamp and puts it, and puts it away in a cellar or under a basket, but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. Uh, our, our son and daughter-in-law and their two girls spent the night with us last night and uh, they're without electricity, and so I get up usually early on Sunday mornings, and, and uh, at the opposite end of the hallway from where Jalen and I sleep is where Paul and Laura were sleeping. Next door is where Lila and Isabel were sleeping, and across from them is, the, is my study. And so there's no light into, our, into that hallway. It's very dark, so you take a blind man in a dark place, in a long hallway. It can be a little bit treacherous. Uh, but I could, I could hear Jay Lynn verbalizing in her mind, don't turn on that light and wake up your granddaughters. Now, she didn't say it, but I know she was thinking it. And so I'm feeling my way down the, down the hallway, trying to make my way over to, the, uh, to, to my study, feeling around on the door, trying to, uh, trying to get into the, into the study. I opened it up and I thought to myself, you know, I stack books all kinds of places in my study. Uh, this, could be, this could be a catastrophe. I could walk over the books, which should be on the shelves, which are right in front of the door. Why I put them there, I don't know. And, and I fall over them. I fall into my chair. It hits the computer screen. It could be a catastrophe. And so I, I turned the light on, closed the door rather quickly, got into my study, and I could see the lay of the land. Jesus and his word are a light for us. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 9, verse 5, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The word of God, is a, it's, a, it's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Jesus wants to guide us, direct us, particularly during the arduous seasons of life. When we're thinking about maybe I could just make a deal with him. Maybe I could just cut a deal. If he'll direct me and lead me and get me to the right place, I'll do this or do that for him. But he doesn't cut deals. He says, those who listen to my word and follow it or practice it will be blessed. And so he says, he is that lamp. His word is that light. If we need direction... We need, we need, and we do need direction. 
Your marriage may be in the very midst of great consternation. And you're thinking, if God, if you will just straighten out my wife, I'll do this for you. God doesn't play those kinds of games. God says to you, straighten out your life. Dig into my word. Follow my injunctions. And I'll work in you. God, God doesn't want to just give us that which is good. He wants to give us that which is best. And we live in a fallen world and we're fallen people. We're in the process of being conformed to the image of Lord Jesus. We need all of the help we can get. And he offers all of the help we need by his word and his spirit using his word to illuminate our steps and shine light on our, on our path. But he changes the imagery just a little bit. He initially is focusing on himself and his word. Now he's going to focus on us and our decisions. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your, whole, your body also is full of darkness. So watch out that the light in you is not darkness. You think you're making the right choice. You may be making the catastrophic choice. Because the right choice is going to be guided by God. He guides the paths of those who listen and follow. Therefore, he says, if your whole body is full of night, I'm sorry, is full of light, without any dark part, it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illuminates you with its light. So what's he saying? He's saying God will bless you. What is blessing? Blessing sometimes is just being guided in a decision. Untangling a, a, a relationship that's gone south. Knowing, knowing should, I, should I take this job or not take this job? One would take me away and the other would keep me near. One might bring me more money. One might bring me more happiness. We don't know what to choose. And God gives us wisdom and providential direction for thinking things through by his word. But he gives that direction to those who are willing to obey. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. I want to lead us in a word of prayer. I want to pray that God would help us to be good listeners and even better followers. And it may be that you need someone to pray with you today. We'd love for you to stop by a connection table. People are there. They would love to pray with you about this. Maybe if you're a man, you'll call someone in your BFG today and just say, hey, hey brother, would you pray for me? I'm thinking about this. I'm trying to work through this. This is, what I'm, this is what I'm thinking. And maybe they'll ask you a few pointed questions. But God wants to guide us by the light of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today that our Savior teaches us what it means to be a good leader and not to be a chameleon that is molded by the crowd. He teaches us where true blessing is to be found, in his teaching, in his word. He teaches us that 
a part of that blessing is giving light where we've experienced darkness. So, Father, all of us need more of that. Every single one of us need more of that, not less. And, Father, thank you that there are so many in this room, so many people who not only hear the Word of God but do it and are magnificent, beautiful models of what it means to walk in the light. They don't have perfect lives. They have sometimes difficult lives. They don't have sunny scenarios. Sometimes they have very dark and foreboding scenarios. And yet you're with them, you're guiding them, and you're blessing them. Father, help all of us, and help me in particular, not to try to be a deal maker with you, because that's an impossibility. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.